0: Welcome once again to Inside the Game. Every weekend we gather like this to talk sports, and occasionally we we branch off, and we're going to do that in the first segment today. Of course, you're listening to AM 950 and FM 94.9, The Answer in Orlando. Now, in this first segment, uh, I want to introduce our engineer. His name is Alan Dempsey, and uh, he has a copy in his hands. It's signed of a book called Revolutionary Leadership, Essential Lessons from the Men and Women of the American Revolution. The author is a fellow named Pat Williams. Uh, The publishers revel books. And with that, may I introduce to you Mr. Alan Dempsey. The
1: man behind the glass here. Hi, Pat. Nice to have you uh, here today.
0: Well, Alan, it's always a joy to come to these studios and... uh, Well, we do a Christian-based show uh, on Saturday, and on Sunday we get to talk sports. But today, uh, in this first segment, Alan... I want to talk about revolutionary leadership. Is that okay with you?
1: That is okay with me, Pat. I actually uh, looked through the book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to that. Good. And uh, I tell you, what I wanted to ask you is, do you see any correlation between what is going on now and what went on during that time?
0: Alan, here's the best way I can answer that. Our country is a miracle when you think about it. Uh, back in that period of the Revolutionary War period, we were, were subject to Great Britain's uh, rule, and uh, our our people began to get very unhappy the way they were being treated. And then came the rebellion, and that followed eight years of war. Uh, there were some remarkable leaders, and that we feature about twenty five of them or so in this book, who stepped up. They were bold. They were courageous. They were fearless, and and they held on. And and in a war we had no business winning over the powerful forces of Great Britain, uh, we prevailed. Yeah. We had a new country. So in answer to your question, Alan, uh, I think we need that same kind of bold, courageous leadership now. Uh, There's always a crisis going on in our country. uh, And I think God in many ways— uh allows them he 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 gives us problems to solve. if we didn't have problems to solve, we'd be bored to death we would be <laughs> we'd be like well fed house cats and uh so i I think uh, the challenge with this book is uh step up and lead in in the school system, in the world of business, in the church, in the athletics, in politics. We need strong, brave, courageous, character filled leaders. God-filled leaders, Alan, just as much now as we did back in the period of the Revolutionary War. I think that's the the message really at the end of this book.
1: Have you seen in the country anybody that may fulfill that? You don't have to give names or anything. But do you think there are some people out there who can fulfill that, uh, what you talk about in your book?
0: Alan, it's interesting that you ask that because the other night at dinner— uh, Ruth, my wife Ruth, and I were talking, and she raised the question. Uh, she said, "Is there another uh, Billy Graham out there waiting to emerge? We need a, we need another Billy Graham." And Alan, I don't know that I can name one. You know who I, you know who I named. You know who I thought. Nice no idea. I said Tim Tebow. Maybe it's Tim Tebow after his football ventures and he'll still be a young man yeah he speaks well he's got a he's got a powerful testimony he loves the lord deeply uh he's now a, a married man uh maybe maybe god is raising up tim tebow to be the next billy graham but we need leaders like that we mm-hmm. need a we need a strong political leader um you know that can take this country and really lead it we need a We need a Ronald Reagan, for example. We need a a Harry Truman. I'm a Truman admirer. Back then, he was the most criticized president ever. But uh, as you look back, he was a man of great courage, strong character. We need those kind of people. We we need them in the church, too, Alan. Uh, We need them in every aspect of life. And I hope this book will inspire people. I hope they read it and say... Boy, you know, I can do that. I, I You know, it's not, a, it's not a war scene, but I can do what this, this leader did or that leader did. I can, I can apply that. I, I hope that's what happens.
1: About the book, when did you start writing this book? That's my curiosity.
0: Alan, it's, it's taken the better part of two and a half years. We, we had a first to first come up with the idea, and then when you do that, uh, you've got to present it to your publisher, and they take it to a pub board mm-hmm. uh, where they sit around all day debating about, is this a book? Is this a title? Uh, we've read we've read the uh, re- previews of it. Is this a book we want to do? That takes time. And then the actual writing uh, took the better part, I guess eight to nine months perhaps, mm-hmm. so it's several years in the in the offing. And then, Alan. Once it comes out, then comes the interesting part. You got to go promote it. Uh, if you just leave it sitting there, uh, uh, books can die on you. I mean, I've had a few that have have had painful deaths, and yeah, <laughs> <coughs> it's not a happy feeling.
1: You should <laughs> see Pat's face when but, he said it.
0: You know, it's a painful.
1: Thing. Yeah, it's painful.
0: But, but so therefore. Uh, you go out and uh, there're several things I've learned number 1 I get a copy of the book into the hands of potential cheerleaders uh, so so through the publisher there are oh I don't know maybe 125 people that I got the book to mm-hmm. in the mail yeah. so that they would get it read it and become hopefully become a cheerleader secondly uh, we'll go out and pound the media uh, any way you can? We launched the book two weeks ago on Fox and Friends. Had a nice interview with Brian Kilmeade, who who uh, always does a nice job on that with me. And uh, he wrote the foreword to the book. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from the for the you've got about a hundred days, Alan, to go make a book work. That's what I've learned. Really, about a hundred days. So when the book comes out, in this case, it was May, and by Labor Day, you'll have you'll have run the course. So, you've got about 100 days to get the book, get the word out. And uh, you hope by then you've got some momentum. Uh, and the best way to, what I've learned now, the best way to sell books is word of mouth. You've got to get the army working for you and, uh, and talking it up and uh-huh. saying, and, and cheer, you know, and have you read that book? Wow, it's a good one. Make sure you get it. I mean, that's what you hope happens.
1: I've got a copy. Yes. Revolutionary Leadership is the book. Pat Williams has written this book. This is a rather unusual book for you. I mean, has history always, American history, been something that's already always been something that fascinated you?
0: Alan, my dad was a high school history teacher and and, and coach at Tower Hill School in Wilmington, Delaware, where we grew up. Uh, so we uh we lived uh history in our home uh my dad was uh and, and i wish in going back uh as a youngster i think we all feel this way i wish i'd been more questioning of my dad i wish i had plowed more deeply into what he did and what he believed but but kids have their own life mm-hmm. and and we have our own issues and uh you know that's, but but I wish I could go back because he he was an American history buff, and uh, taught it well. Uh, you know many of his former students I hear from, from from time to time. So I grew up in that setting, and then if you live in Wilmington, you are so close to Philadelphia, at an hour away, uh, where, where so much of the Revolutionary War period took place. Mm-hmm. And if you want to go uh, further south, down into Virginia, that's a couple hours away. Uh, Boston is uh, not far away as you go north. And, and so much of the Revolutionary War took place in Massachusetts and, and New York.
1: Did you visit all these places?
0: Later on, Later on, as an adult, mm-hmm. uh, when I got, I got really interested, first I got very interested in the Civil War. Uh, I was older. I was probably in my 40s when I first went to Gettysburg. And that that uh, got me absolutely uh, fascinated with the whole Civil War, and then came the visits to uh, Gettysburg, then Antietam, and then Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg, and uh, then to um, Chattanooga. And uh, you know, I've I've missed a few Civil War mm-hmm. battle sites, but I've I've hit most of them. Appomattox and. Uh, uh, the uh, seven days in in uh, Richmond or around Richmond. So, uh, but then uh, then came the same intrigue with the Revolutionary. Where I said I've been been around this all my life, but I don't really know about this. I haven't really dug into mm-hmm. this, and I I've never seen any of these sites, even though they're all very close to where I live. And so that that prompted. And once I got into it, uh, I, I got really excited about it, and then. Began to figure out who are these people, who are these men and women uh, that allowed this country to come into existence, and and we began to figure out who should be featured in the book. I I think we got the main people. Mm-hmm. Some of these people are not known. Uh, many are famous. Some are me- medium known, uh, and, and we found women, you know, who uh, deserve to be included in this book, who, who participated in. The uh, Revolutionary War. So, my, I, I guess, Alan, what I'm saying is, and maybe even this summer, you know, you we're back functioning again. Amen. Uh, get in your. Get <laughs> it's in about your, time. Get in your car and and drive north. Uh, take in the Civil War and the Revolutionary War because because in many cases, Alan, they inter inter uh, interchange with each other. You can do both both wars, you know, on the same journey. Uh, as you get up into Virginia and then work up through Maryland, and
1: have you done this?
0: Uh, I have. Yeah, I have over over years. And I, if ever I'm in an area and I want to see a battlefield, it, and it's very very moving, uh, powerful. You know, to see how our country came into being and and what took place. So, Alan, we're we got to take a break. Let me uh, just pause here. You're listening to Inside the Game. Uh, I'm your host, Pat Williams. Alan Dempsey is with me behind the glass. Uh, It's AM 950 and FM 94.9, The Answer. Uh, We've got one more segment here talking about revolutionary leadership, uh, my latest book. Stay with us.
1: Welcome back to Inside the Game. I know you usually hear Pat Williams, but I thought that I'd have the privilege and honor to talk uh, to Pat today on Inside the Game about his latest book. It's Revolutionary Leadership, Essential Lessons from the Men and Women of the American Revolution. And Pat, here we are together again for another segment.
0: Well, thanks, Alan. Uh, We had a good time putting this book together. And uh, over this next uh 12 minutes or so why don't we talk about uh, some of these individuals that's what
1: i was going to ask you that, about that we feature but before we do that i want to ask you were there any surprises that you found uh looking at these different individuals who founded our country
0: well that's a good question were, were there surprises i i guess alan the the biggest surprise was that um When you really dig in and study a Henry Knox or a Nathaniel Green, uh, they all came from different backgrounds, uh, but yet they were totally devoted, Mm -hmm. totally committed to winning this war and and creating a new country. And I didn't realize, I don't think, the intensity of these people— uh, and 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 the the uh, discipline and the focus um, they were they were putting their lives on the line I was line. just going
1: to say they were ready to lay down their lives for this country
0: when they signed that uh, declaration of Ooh. independence Alan, and and officially broke away from great britain well you you heard ben franklin's great uh, statement he said we we all better hang together or we're going to hang separately mm-hmm. And uh, so they knew. They knew they were putting their lives on the line. Uh, that became really clear to me. Um, the other thing, Alan, that um, I think was kind of a surprise is how interesting these people are. By and large, mm-hmm. interesting people. And when you really dig in and study their lives, uh, you come away saying, "All right, I got a sense of. I, I know that guy a little. I, I've got a feel for him." I, I, I can I can appreciate her.
1: Do you think they had this all mapped out? They knew exactly what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go with the country.
0: Alan, that's I think that's a fabulous question. And the other question is, did they realize that they were making history? Yeah. And that uh, two hundred years later, <laughs> uh, they would be um, featured in books, and there would there would be endless discussions about them. I. Th- I I I think they knew they were making history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think they knew that. Um, did did they think it would be um, go down through the decades and the centuries and become such a big deal and so important today as when they were doing it? Maybe maybe they couldn't really appreciate that that much, but they they knew Alan that they were in the middle of something special mm-hmm. and. Uh, did they have a plan? I don't think they did. I, th- I think they were just—they were just trying to exist. They were just trying to—to f- uh, to survive to fight another day. And—and—and wow. and, 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 uh, Alan, the—it uh, was so dark and uh, so troubled. You know, we weren't doing well. And then—and then a miracle took place when George Washington on Christmas New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve, he, he took his troops across the Delaware River into Trenton and, and caught the uh, caught the soldiers there napping, celebrating, maybe a little inebriated, and they, uh, they, they had a huge victory wow. in Trenton, huge. and And suddenly the nation uh, perks up. Oh, boy, that, there was hope. Mm-hmm. There was a sense of accomplishment. and then right on the heels of that, uh, there was another victory in Princeton, New Jersey, um, um, on the Delaware River, just off the Delaware River. Another win. And, and Washington now has two, two quick wins. And suddenly there's a, there's a sense of optimism that, uh, <clears throat> you know, maybe if we keep battling here long enough, uh, we, can, we can have some successes. But, but, but Washington lost more battles in the war, Alan, than he won. Wow. But fortunately, he won the last one in Yorktown. Mm-hmm. And and great amount of credit belongs to the, to the French who came alongside of us. Amen. And uh, without them, I don't think we would have prevailed. Mm-hmm. They, they provided their navy. Uh, we didn't have a navy, but they did. And they, that, that was a huge part of holding off the British navy. And uh, the, the French uh, investment, you know, in this war was of, of great importance.
1: Wow. Uh, I'm curious about uh, number five in your book. The book is Revolutionary Leadership, Essential Lessons from the Men and Women of the American Revolution. Sarah Bradley Fulton, the mother of the Boston Tea Party.
0: Well, Alan, let's take a look at Sarah Bradley Fulton.
1: I'm real curious about this lady.
0: She was born in 1740. Uh, she was a leader in the Daughters of Liberty, a movement of 92 women from the 13 colonies who supported the American Revolution. And so it's late November 1773. The tea laden cargo ship Dartmouth dropped anchor in Boston Harbor, throwing the colony of Massachusetts into crisis. Bostonians were ready to riot. And then on December 6th, 16th, just before the governor's deadline for an unloading of the uh, uh, Dartmouth cargo of tea, Samuel Adams calls a town meeting and 5,000 Bostonians showed up. A group of men left the meeting early and went to the home of Nathaniel Bradley, the brother of Sarah Bradley Fulton and a leader in the Patriot move. And then the men prepared to launch a powerful yet peaceful act of protest. The Boston... Tea Party. Wow. So here, here's Sarah Bradley Fulton. She proposed disguising the men as Mohawk Indians to prevent them from being recognized. And in the kitchen of Nathaniel Bradley's home, Sarah applied war paint to the faces of her brother, her husband, and their Tea Party companions. Now, according to some accounts, a British spy peeked in the window of the house that night. But the only sight he saw was Sarah and her mother-in-law working in the kitchen. The women were moving about so quietly and naturally that he passed on, little dreaming what he was really in pro- what was really going on there. Wow. So in a, at the agreed- upon hour, the tea parters headed toward the wharf where three tea-filled British ships: the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver. Wonder how they named them. I have no idea. And they're anchored there. <laughs> Spectators lined the wharf as the men boarded the ships struck open the tea chest, and filled Boston Harbor with tea.
1: And the rest is history.
0: So, wow. So this woman, um, Sarah Bradley Fulton, she lived to see the founding of the United States of America and the inauguration of several presidents. She died peacefully in her sleep, November 1835, just one month short of her 95th birthday. Wow about that that's amazing so what are the lessons we can take from Sarah Bradley Fulton this patriot a leader more than lived up to the title of the mother of the Boston Tea Party at the end of each chapter Alan we, we list leadership lessons from that person so so here's a number one, number one lesson great leaders are team builders and unifiers she was part of this team that planned and launched the Boston Tea Party a second lesson. Uh, Great leaders are creative thinkers. Uh, uh, Sarah identified potential problems, found innovative solutions. Number three, great leaders remain calm and think clearly in times of crisis. Sarah Bradley Fulton organized a team of nurses to tend the wounded after the Battle of Bunker Hill. She maintained a sense of calm efficiency in the midst of every crisis that came her way. And then the fourth lesson... Great leaders are courageously willing to sacrifice themselves for the cause. While facing the muzzles of British guns, she said, shoot away, and got the job done. And when George Washington needed to send dispatches into enemy-occupied Boston, Sarah summoned the physical courage to cross behind enemy lines in the dead of night. She did what needed to be done at great personal risk. So, the name of Sarah Bradley Fulton may not be well known, but we can be grateful for her example of bold leadership, Alan. Boy,
1: that was. Do you have any favorites in here? Maybe one favorite that you can think of that you'd like to talk about? Well,
0: I'm a big Henry Knox fan. Oh. So, here's the story Henry Knox is a bookseller, young guy. Yeah. In Boston, heavy set, big, Mm -hmm. rotund guy. Uh, And so the war begins in the Boston area, and he volunteers to Washington, and uh, Washington accepts him, this young man, and uh, the British are closing in in Boston. And, 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 and I still have a hard time understanding how this happened. There was a huge cache of weaponry up in Fort Ticonderoga up in New York State, which uh, the Americans had won, and all that heavy equipment was there, and so Knox came to Washington and said, I've got an idea of getting all that equipment lugged down here to Boston for you. Washington said to him, young man, go ahead. So it's the dead of winter. Uh, they get to Fort Ticonderoga. And they find over 100,000 pounds of equipment. And, and, and with a team of horses and some oxen, Oh, uh, they, they, they get they get that equipment on the move down to Boston. It took weeks to do it. I still don't understand how it could have happened. Um, it's, it's icy. It's cold. Uh, fortunately, the, 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 the lakes were frozen, and they could get over the lakes. Sometimes they broke through the ice, and, and some of this equipment went down in the water, and they had to pull that out somehow. It, it's just amazing what happened. Anyway, uh, uh, young Henry Knox shows up in Boston, and with all this equipment, and and Link and, uh, Washington set it up. Uh, the British saw it and said, uh-oh, this doesn't look good. They, they've got this high angle, and we better get out of here. And so they, they uh, settled. They tell the Americans we're leaving um, and um, leave the city of Boston untouched and um
1: the rest is history and
0: they moved on to new york where it didn't go as well but boston was 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 not damaged was not harmed uh at the beginning of the war henry knox he went on to become uh washington's secretary of defense and when we hear of fort knox in in kentucky where all our money is well that's That's him that's him that's henry knox so that's an interesting chapter about henry knox Alan, we've run out of time. Thank
1: you, Pat. I enjoyed it.
0: Great to visit with you. The book, Revolutionary Leadership. The author? uh, Me. Pat Williams. (laughs) Uh, We're back to sports. Stay with us. It's Inside the Game. Uh, AM 950, FM 94.9, The Answer in Orlando. Uh, We will be right back. Folks, we are back, and Rob Nyer joins us. Uh, He's out in the Pacific Northwest, Portland. Has been covering baseball for many, many years. Passionate about the game, and we're going to talk baseball with Rob. Rob, uh, welcome to Orlando. How are you?
2: I'm well. Thanks for having me. Rob,
0: I'm very curious. You've been in Portland, uh, well, for 20 years. Yep. Portland is talking up major league baseball, but yet the city is in the news with all sorts of issues downtown and explain to us what's going on in Portland and how is it it's affected the city and 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 affected the quest someday perhaps for major league baseball. What are you, what are you seeing and hearing?
2: Well, it's uh, you know, it's we don't you and I don't have enough time um all week to probably get into everything and um, I'll try to lay things out as I see it as in just just a few minutes. Um, First of all, yes, there is an, has been an effort for really decades. I mean, this is happening when I, when I moved here back in 2002 to bring major league baseball to Portland, the effort seems farther along than it has been in the past. I think in part because uh, Rob Manford, I don't know, two or three years ago for the first time in a long time, um, brought up the idea of expansion. For a long, for a, when Bud Seeler was commissioner, that was not on the table. It wasn't even mentioned. And now it's at least mentioned. So that opens things up quite a bit, at least psychologically, for places that were looking to get a team. Uh, you know, Before, it seemed like you were always going to be, at best, fighting to, to get one of the teams that might maybe someday be moving. But when you talk, when you bring expansion into the conversation, then you can you can expand your your imagination a little. So yeah, there are some serious plans here. There are some pretty pretty big names that are involved with the with the campaign to bring baseball to Portland. I honestly don't know that what's happened, especially downtown, but not just downtown. There, there's been um, there have been protests, some of them turning violent. Um, in various parts of the city, not just downtown. That's just where it's most obvious because that's where the um, most of the news stories have been have been done. Uh, that's where windows have been boarded up. But there are, you know, I live in North Portland, which is six or seven miles from downtown, and a couple miles from me um, is a building where the the, the uh, headquarters for the police officers union, and and that's been a, a site for protest and, and dumpster fires and such things. So, um, it's been different parts of the city. Now, having said that people who don't live here and just see Portland on television might think that it's become sort of some sort of hellscape. And if you go out on a pleasant spring or so, uh, spring afternoon or evening, um, most of the things are happening that have always happened, especially, I mean, obviously with COVID, things are different, but uh, the people are still going out to eat. Um, and, of course, we've got uh, had a huge expansion of outdoor seating in so many restaurants. So in some ways, just walking around, it's more vibrant than it's ever been. And honestly, I think that while the protests are unlikely to simply end tomorrow or next week or next month, I do think that we will return to relative normalcy um, in the coming months. And I honestly don't think that, you know, it's not clear yet whether downtown will ever come all the way back, although I think that it probably will. Um, the ballpark sites that have been talked about are not really downtown anyway. They're kind of on the fringes of downtown. And um, and, and I think that um, ultimately – I don't really see a great impact of the protests on the the, the campaign to bring baseball to Portland.
0: Rob, what are these people uh, out there protesting about? What's on their mind? What's their problem?
2: Well, uh, I I can't claim to be an expert. I think that one trap that we all tend to fall into is thinking that everyone who attends a protest is there for the same reason. And I don't think that's true. Um, I think that the, the core of the protesting is tied to the black lives matter movement. Mm. Um, And certainly every major city has dealt with, with policing issues. Um, uh, You know, people can argue, about whether they're isolated incidents, whether they're systemic or not, Um, you know, those are for smarter people. Than I to figure out, but I think that's the that's the core complaint of most protesters. Protesters now, some protesters just show up because they want to be where where things are happening, and maybe mix it up a little bit. And and I think obviously that's unfortunate. Um, It it would be it would be inaccurate to suggest that the motives for every of every protester are pure. But my personal feeling, Pat, is that most people are there for the are protesting for the right reasons, whether or not they they, they know everything that's happening. Um, I think most of them are typically nonviolent. I think most of them want to see a better country um, and uh, and more justice. Where we can all where we're all never going to agree is how we get there. But I think most of us would agree that that uh, fairness and justice are are ultimately good things. Um, but there are a lot of arguments about the rest of it.
0: A uh, baseball um, historian, baseball student, uh, Rob Nyer, is with us. W- where did your passion for baseball develop, Rob?
2: Well, I think it really comes down to the Kansas City Royals in 1976. Uh, when, I was a little ch- when I was a small child, I just loved sports. And uh, as you know, in, in growing up when I grew up, um you're a little older than I but but I'm sure you can relate. I grew up in the early 70s, mid 70s, late 70s and sports were everywhere. Uh when I was 9 years old, I played four sports. I wasn't very good at any of them, but I played baseball and football and and uh and basketball and floor hockey in leagues. It was just part of it was just part of being a kid. So I love sports generally and in 1976 my family moved to Kansas city or the Kansas city area suburb actually. And we got there and I think it was April of 76, just as the baseball season was starting and Kansas city at that time was baseball crazy. Uh, And it just so happened that 76 was the first year the Royals actually went to the playoffs. And I just, I, 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 I don't remember the moment when it happened, but I know it happened Quickly, um, I think within a, within certainly a month or two, I was obsessed with the Royals. Wanted to listen to every game on the radio. Wanted to look at the box score in the newspaper the next day. Um, my father' company he worked for was actually owned by Ewing Kaufman, who owned the Royals. So, so my father could get pretty good tickets for the Royals games. And I remember my, going to my first game and sitting not too far uh, above the third base dugout and seeing George Brett right there and uh, I was just completely utterly captivated it was just exactly the right the the sweet spot right age right team Mm. um, right city all of it and uh, uh, and I just became obsessed there were years uh, when I would not miss a Royals game I would listen to it I would go to it or I would watch it on TV where did Bill James enter your life Well, that's another very vivid memory, and I know exactly when that happened. Um, In 1984, I moved 30 miles from home to go to the University of Kansas, which is where most of my friends were going, and on one of my very first days in Lawrence, I walked into the university bookstore and headed straight to the sports section to look, look at baseball books, and there was this book. Uh, this green, eight and a half by eleven book, Bill James Baseball Abstract 1984. Now I had never heard of Bill James. I, I'm not sure how I would missed him. Maybe I'd come across the name in that, Sports Illustrated or something, but never, never, never resonated with me. But I saw this book, and I thought that was interesting. But I don't know what it is, but but you know, at, at the time, in the fall of '84, the Royals were in the middle of a three or four team pennant race for the American League West, and again, I was still obsessed. With the Royals, and so I picked this book up and I started reading it and just leafing through. And I, it, it was like it had been written just for me, mm. um, because you know, as you know, Bill looked at the game in a way that nobody else looked at it, at least in terms of the the media. You know, I, I grew up reading the newspaper and. Sports Illustrated and the Sporting News and and, and, and loved all of those things and ate it all up. But here was somebody who was writing things that I'd never read before, and I was just fascinated. So I bought the book, took it back to my apartment, devoured it probably in a few hours, certainly within a day or two. And uh, now I've added uh, to my Royals obsession a Bill James obsession. And then, of course, as you know, I later went on to work for him, which was incredibly fortunate.
0: Rob Nyer is our guest. He's in Portland uh, talking baseball with Rob. Um, how has Bill James changed the game of baseball? Uh, for the good, you think?
2: <laughs> well, that's a heck of a question, Pat. Um, do I th- Do I? I think that Bill has made a lot of people a lot smarter. Mm -hmm. And not just about baseball. I've run into so many people over the years who had nothing to do with baseball except for being fans who said that he changed the way that they thought about the world. And that's Mm. certainly true for me. Um, Now, I think the reason you asked, I I could be wrong. I I think your question, the, the, the foundation of your question, is based on the idea, which I tend to agree with, that, Smarter baseball is not necessarily better, more entertaining baseball. A- a- am, I, am, I, am I right? Yeah, interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> um, the baseball that we have today is, for the most part, I-, I wouldn't say completely. There are some things that players and teams do today that I don't think are particularly smart. But generally speaking, the game that we have today is, is, is the product of – Essentially, at this point, every team buying into percentages.
0: My guest is Rob Nyer. He is on the West Coast in the Portland area. Always fun to talk baseball with him. We have another segment with Rob. It's Inside the Game. I'm your host, Pat Williams. This is AM 950 and FM 94.9 The Answer in Orlando. Just a reminder, uh, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and and you can help. There's a website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. Go up to that website and just say, good idea, I like this. Orlando's ready to be a Major League Baseball city, orlandodreamers.com. Rob Nyer is our guest, and uh, we're talking baseball with Rob Rob. Uh, uh, so much going on uh, in the minor leagues of baseball—the whole realignment—and now they're doing different experiments in in some of these different leagues about some some of these uh, pieces of the game. I'm I'm curious
2: about your reaction to all this. I, I love the experimentation. I really do. I, I think that it's long overdue. In fact, I could be wrong about this. I don't know if it was Bill's idea or my idea or some other, somebody else's idea, but I do recall years and years ago reading or maybe writing the argument that MLB should use minor league baseball or purchase a, a, an independent league and use it as a test bed for all sorts of different ideas. And they, they sort of began that process when they started working with uh, the, uh, the Atlantic League a few years ago, and and, and now they've expanded that, obviously, to to run some experiments in all the different minor leagues as well now that MLB has essentially completely taken over uh, the minor leagues. And and there are a lot of things about that that I I, I don't find all that attractive, but I I do appreciate the experimentation. You've got to have data to make good decisions if you want to change rules, especially now when changing rules has become so difficult. You know, back in 1968, when the pitchers took over and the league batting average was 230 or something, uh, and Bob Gibson had that 1.12 ERA, while while that was sort of in the lead up to that, the, years heading, the pitchers were clearly taking over and people kept blaming the hitters. Uh, all the hitters need to do is be better. Uh, it's their fault, et cetera, et cetera. But when 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 things sort of hit that that level in 1968, baseball just said collectively and collectively, what I I just mean the team said we have to do something about this. This isn't the game the fans want to watch, and they lowered the mound the next year, J- just that simple. They just said we're going to do this, and and they did it. Well, it's it's so much harder now to change rules because of the media and especially because of the of the the power that the players have with their union, not to begrudge them that power, but it's just a a fact that that has to be dealt with whenever you want to change anything substantively in the game. And you've got to build consensus for it, essentially, with not just the owners and the media, but also the players. And I think part of building a consensus for change is, is having data that will show you, what will happen if 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 you implement that change? Um, so I, I'm all for I'm all for collecting data.
0: Rob, what do you make of these pitchers that come on the mound? It seems like every one of them firing the ball at 98 miles an hour. i about right. Degrom the other night; he's up over a hundred. What's it, how do you account for that? Is, is it just is it just the power of these pitchers—they're all—it seemingly, Rob. So many of them are six foot five, two hundred and fifty. You know, big right. monster guys. Um, your feelings?
2: Well, certainly the size of the pitchers is a uh, is a lot of that change, and absolutely the the average fastball speed has has gone up significantly in the last ten years. No question. I think I don't have the figures at hand, but I, I would guess it's gone from something like. Ninety-two to ninety-five, mm. just in the last ten years, some, 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 somewhere in that range, um, and of course, many, many more pitchers today who can throw ninety-eight to a hundred plus than we saw than we had ten years ago. Let alone twenty or thirty. Yes, a, a lot of that is the pitchers being bigger, and that's been tracked for a long time. If you look at a graph of of baseball player size over the over the decades. It's just gone up and up, and i mean it's 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 a very sort of linear sort of of line in the sense that it's um it's consistent the The increase in fastball speed is not consistent that took a clear jump and and I think most of that is i shouldn't say most of it a lot of that is players simply training to throw harder with advanced training techniques. another big part of it is that pitchers simply don't have to pace themselves anymore. You know, we, we think about the Jacob DeGroms of the world, and we should, um, but maybe a more dramatic change is, is how incredible the relief pitchers are these days. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's asked if they're more than one inning or 20, 25 pitches in an appearance. All they are asked to do is to come in and throw 95 to 100 for an inning. And many teams now have five or six pitchers who can do that. Not, and then three or four more who can almost do it because the bullpens are massive. That's why they only ask them to throw one inning at a time. Eight-man bullpen, sometimes nine. Um, These changes were not anything that people saw coming thirty years ago when you know a team might have a nine-man pitching staff use eleven pitchers over the course of an entire season. Now you're going to use twenty-five pitchers in a season. Uh, they come in, they throw, you send them back to the minors if they pitch two games in a row, and you bring up another one. And Mm. there's just no end to it.
0: Rob, I would really be curious, wouldn't you? Uh, What did Rube Waddell throw, and what did Lefty Grove throw? How about Walter Johnson and Bob (laughs) Feller? I mean, were they throwing uh,
2: a 98 and over 100? Well, Pat, I actually wrote a book about this with Bill James, a book about pitchers about 10 years ago. And we tried to answer those sorts of questions and you can only get so far. Um, Our take basically was that no pitchers in those days didn't throw nearly as hard as pitchers today do. Walter Johnson probably did not throw 95 miles an hour, I, I think, but he didn't need to. If he's throwing 92 and most of the other pitchers are throwing 80, 84 or 85, then Johnson is going to look like he's throwing 100, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think Grove, I think, threw harder than Johnson. I think Feller threw harder than Grove. Mm-hmm. And Feller, people did try to track his pitches with radar or not, or not radar, high-speed cameras. Um, I think there's a pretty good case he made that Feller was in the, in the upper 90s. Um, I don't think you would do as hard as Nolan Ryan did. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think you would do as hard as Jacob deGrom did. But compared to the other pitchers that were around, of course, Feller looked like he was throwing a million. Um, but, no, I think that pitchers have just thrown harder and harder over the years. And, yes, there were pro- there were a few outliers in there, Smoky Joe Wood and Walter Johnson and mm-hmm. Grove and Feller. But, but, for the most part, um, pitchers throw – far, far harder now than they did 40, 50 years ago.
0: Your thoughts, Rob, about moving the mound back a foot or so, and that's that's happening in some minor league, isn't it? What's going on?
2: Uh, I believe it's happening in a minor league, um, moving it back, I believe six inches first half, and then another six inches second half, if I recall correctly. Um, Honestly, I don't know, Pat. I mean – it's never been done before. Um, I, 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 what I don't, haven't been able to understand is why they're moving the mound back instead of shaving a few inches from the height of the mound, which, of course, they did in 1969. Uh, I think that would be more effective. And I also think, I mean, I know that we have some experience in doing that because it was done 52 years ago.
0: So does the, um, the mound creep
2: back up? A higher? I don't think so. I mean, I certainly it's it's it, it it depends on the groundskeepers, but I think for the most part, um, I think that that the mounds have, have been kept to that 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 height. I believe it's a ten. It's either ten or twelve. Um, when it was fifteen back in sixty prior to nineteen sixty nine, I think. Um, but no, I, I think it's a good experiment. I, I think nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, and the, the tough thing for the pitchers, of course, is that they've spent their whole lives, or not their whole lives, but since they were in high school going from sixty feet six inches and what happens when you ask them to to do it from a different distance I, my assumption is that they will make the adjustment um, we won't see a huge difference in what they're doing but yes it will help the hitters um, but nobody really knows that's that's why you run these experiments I guess i'm I'm just uh, it, it's for people who like to look at experiments and data and and uh, ask and answer questions um, it's gonna be a really interesting summer
0: uh tell me this rob um what kind of a bird watcher are you and and how do (laughs) do you rate yourself
2: i am uh, I, i wish i were better i used to have designs on being an outstanding bird watcher and uh i never really got there i had a group of friends who spurred me on and and the group sort of fell apart and then i had a kid six years ago and uh so now I'm mostly just a backyard birder. I still like to get out every once in a while and and look, go out and chase a rare bird. But uh, I'm looking right now at a, uh, what is that out there? I have a, a Buick's Wren I'm looking at right now in the backyard, and uh, and that's pretty much enough for me these days.
0: Is is the Portland area big for birds?
2: It is, yeah. There's a number of great huge parks and wildlife refuges right here and literally inside the city. So. Yeah, it's a it's a really nice spot, especially for for ducks.
0: Rob, if you could sit down
2: today for lunch
0: with any person in the history of baseball, any any aspect of the game, uh, who who do you want to go to your local coffee house with up there in Portland and have lunch with?
2: Well, gosh, let's see. It, it's got to be somebody that that I've never gotten a chance to actually speak to that knocks out most of the living people, not all of them. Uh, I I think that um, I would love to just sit across from Branch Ricky, wind him up and let him go because he was, you know, I spent four years working for Bill James. Bill James is the smartest person I've ever been around, or certainly the most interesting person just because Bill, he just sees the world from a slightly different perspective than almost anybody else you'll ever meet. And you've, you've met a lot of brilliant people over the years in your line of work, but but Bill's is the only genius that I've ever spent a great deal of time around.
0: My guest has been Rob Nair, uh, a baseball writer, baseball fan, Mr. Baseball. Uh, thanks for joining us here on Inside the Game. I'm your host, Pat Williams. Uh, We'll be back next weekend for more. Stay tuned to AM 950 and FM 94.9 The Answer in Orlando. And have a wonderful week ahead.